going to be looking at uh, Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20 today, a message I'll call, I am crucified with Christ. You'll see that right off the bat. I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not frustrate the grace of God, for if righteousness come by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. May God bless the reading of his word today is my prayer. Uh, Paul has been in a rather biographical section of this book uh, for quite a while. And yet today the message really gets personal. And you see that as you see the changes in the pronouns. And notice in verse 16, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Jesus Christ, that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. But if while we seek to be justified by our Christ, uh, we ourselves also are found sinners, is therefore Christ the minister of sin, God forbid. It is a man. Uh, which man? Any man, every man, any person, anywhere. It's a very generic kind of concept, what we would call a theoretical kind of concept. His usage of the term we in this passage is called editorial in that sense. He includes both himself, the writer, and his audience, uh, the people at Galatia, but also even reaching across the centuries uh, to speak to you and I today so that we are all included. This is we. It is a generic kind of theoretical statement. In this case, he's also including, of course, the people that he's arguing with and what he is arguing against. And so it is we, a man, somebody, anybody, all of that is in here discussing a very general application of truth. But then there's an abrupt change in the passage that demands for us to notice it. Verse 18, for if I build again the things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. For I, through the law, am dead to the law, that I might live unto God. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not frustrate the grace of God. For if righteousness come by the law then Christ is dead in vain. If I count it correctly, Paul refers to himself in the first person 15 times in these four verses. You see, things have changed. It's not the theoretical anymore. It's not just what happens to anybody or somebody or to all humanity or any man. Now it's about what happened to me, what happened to me. The gospel does that to us. It demands that we move things out of the theoretical into a very personal application. And we do that because it's one thing to discuss how that uh, religion won't save anybody. 
that doing good things or performing religious rituals or going through religious observances won't save anybody. It's one thing to talk about how the practice of the Jewish rituals and traditions and the Jewish religion or even being born Jewish as a descendant physically of Abraham and Sarah, that didn't save any, anybody, anybody. It's one thing to talk about how being born into a family even today that practices a certain religious tradition and maybe raises their, their children to identify with that. Uh, yet it's still the same as it was in the first century being identified in a religious family or a religious profession doesn't save anybody. Anybody. That's one thing. It's one thing to discuss how the gospel of Jesus Christ has the power to save anyone who believes it. No matter if that person is uh, maybe not religious at all. Maybe they've been religious, but you know what? If they'll believe the gospel, the gospel will save a religious person. But a person maybe has been raised in a completely irreligious type of family, a completely secular type of family. You've never maybe darkened the church door and, and have no concept of godliness. But you know what? If you'll believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel of Jesus Christ will save you too. Religious or irreligious, whether you're living a, a, a good, solid, stable life or whether your life is, is really full of instability and all kinds of sin, the gospel will save you no matter what if you will believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. You see the gospel can save anybody anywhere regardless of what kind of situation there is. That's kind of a theoretical kind of statement. Generic way it applies to all humanity. It's one thing to discuss what won't save anybody or what will save anybody. But it's another thing to talk about what didn't save me and what did save me. Paul then has moved to a discussion of how his religion didn't save him, how he had had to turn away from the works of the law and <coughs> how, as he says it here in this passage, I actually have distanced myself. I had to reject what I had been taught to rely on. I had to destroy these things in my life in order to come to Christ. That's why sometimes it's harder for a religious person who's been raised in the Lord or, or raised in church rather all their life. Sometimes it's harder for them to be saved because they've learned to rely on their religion and their practice and their ritual uh, just like Paul had. But regardless... The gospel doesn't give us the option of leaving it in the theoretical. We always have to make it personal. And we do that when we make a decision. And everybody in this building today and everyone watching from at home, you will all make the gospel personal today because you'll either receive it and you'll receive the glorious truth of salvation or you'll reject it and remain lost. You'll make your own personal decision. It's not just a theory. Not just a concept that we can think about maybe. No. The gospel demands a response. And it gets it. Now, we could just look at Paul's testimony, but I want to bring you another testimony about the same thing from the New Testament, the testimony of the Apostle John in John chapter 1. 
as he talks about his own time when the gospel became real to him and he had his own personal encounter with the gospel. John chapter 1 verse 11, he starts out this way. He, that's Jesus, came into his own and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them gave he the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name. He would talk about John the Baptist and how John the Baptist came preaching and John uh, heard him. John the Apostle, as we know him, heard John the Baptist. I know it's confusing. Stay with me. Stay awake here. John the Baptist preaching the gospel. This man came for a witness to bear witness of that light that all through him might believe. Notice, might believe. Not that all would but that all might. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light, which gives light to every man coming to the world. Follow his thinking. He said, John the Baptist came to give witness to the light, and that light is the light of Jesus Christ. This light, John says, gives light to every man coming into the world so that every person then has the opportunity. They might believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, but not everyone does. We live today in a world where the numbers of those rejecting Jesus Christ is growing exponentially. You may have heard today about Jesus. Some of you from at home, you might have heard some message about Jesus Christ. But I warn you, what you've heard about Jesus Christ in Christianity may not be the truth at all. What you may have gotten was just some caricature, something somebody made up, exaggerating what they would consider to be uh, the harshness and cruelty of the Christian faith and message. And a lot of times, I find it true all the time, that when people reject Christ, they don't reject Christ as He is. They reject Christ as they have imagined Him to be, or as someone else has made Him up to be, not as Christ actually reveals himself. But you see, John is giving his own testimony, and in many ways it was similar to the testimony of Paul the Apostle. Like Paul, John had grown up in the Jewish faith. Like Paul, he was born into a Jewish family. Like Paul, he was raised in all the things that the law demanded that they do, circumcised the eighth day as a Jewish male, keeping all of the rules and rituals, following all the observances of Judaism. Then John went out one day in the wilderness and heard John the Baptist preaching. And on that day, he realized that all of his keeping of the rules and all of his observance of the Jewish rituals had not saved him at all. He was lost. And he received Jesus Christ as his Savior. In bringing up that testimony, John brings up one of the strongest arguments for the truth of the gospel, and that is the fact of creation. In verse 10, he said, He, that's Jesus, was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. You see, all the scientific explanation for the existence of the universe is something that you all are very well aware of. A scientist will present this to you and they can make it sound very good. They'll present it to you with, with unflinching stare. They'll smile. It'll sound so good. But in your heart of hearts, there is something that leaves you really uncomfortable. Because deep down you know that science has absolutely no credible explanation for the existence of life. 
life is so incredibly complex. Even the simplest form of life, even the simplest a building block of life, which is amino acids, the possibility of those things just remotely combining and formulating themselves are astronomical. It's simply they're so far into the realm of theory as to be impossible. They know that it's not possible. And in fact, I can show you the testimony of renowned scientists who have admitted that their explanation for the origin of life is impossible, and yet they'll say the alternative is unthinkable. The alternative is that Jesus Christ made the world. John put it this way, in him was life, and this life was the light of men. It is the very existence, you see, of life that calls upon us to understand if this life is, then somebody had to make that life. And that is the light that God gives to illuminate everybody in the world and point you to your need for Jesus Christ. That uneasiness you have with a scientific explanation for how the world exists and how life exists is actually being used by the Spirit of God to point you to Jesus Christ today. Now, you can approach all this as a theory. You can. But when you receive Jesus Christ, it becomes very personal to you. And all of us here today can give that testimony. So again, I mentioned John. I bring this up so that you'll know that this isn't just Paul's. Uh, the Bible calls on uh, the mouth of two or three witnesses. So you have Paul's testimony, uh, all of his religion, all of his ritual, everything that he had gone through in life. No, that didn't, that didn't save him. John's testimony, all of his religion, all of his ritual. No, that did not save me. John was saved under the powerful preaching and witness of John the Baptist. Paul was saved under the preaching of Jesus Christ himself. As they believe the gospel, the truth about him. But one of the great arguments that they faced then, and one of the great arguments we still today face, is in, that in the absence of the law, in the absence of ritual, in the absence of all these rules and regulations, then how is a person to live out their faith so that it becomes very real, very personal in your life and mine? Paul would use himself as an example of how that though he was a boy raised in Judaism and steeped in that ritual, he came to know Jesus Christ. His life was changed and he learned to live for Jesus without all the rule and ritual. Maybe today you've been raised in a religion. Maybe you were taught to do a certain group of things, things you can do, things you can't do. And I'll just start, since we're Baptists, I'll start with Baptists. You, you were raised a Baptist like I was. I was going to a Baptist church nine months before I was born. I mean, we, you were raised a Baptist. And you were taught good Baptist boys don't do this, and good Baptist girls don't do this, and, and good Baptists do this, and good Baptists do that. And when you do all those things that good Baptists do, and you avoid all those things that good Baptists don't do, that makes you a good practitioner of the Baptist faith. But it doesn't make you a child of God. Any more than being a good Jewish boy and doing all the Jewish things didn't make Paul a child of God. Didn't make John a child of God. 
So how do you live then life as a Christian? How does this play out for us in our real life experience, in our personal way? How does this come to us? Paul gives this testimony, and it begins then with our life of union with Christ. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. This is the doctrine of union with Christ, and it teaches us that when you're saved, when you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, that his death is counted as your death, his burial is counted as your burial, his resurrection life then becomes your life, and his new life then becomes the new life that you have. It is the doctrine of union with Christ, and it is the very essence of our justification. Uh, the New Testament is full of references about how that we died with Christ and are buried with him and raised with him. Romans 6 comes quickly to mind where it speaks of baptism. Baptism is not the means of this. Baptism is a picture of our union with Christ. God declares us righteous on the basis of our, the fact that we are united with Jesus Christ as we are a believer. We're in Christ and Christ is in us. This spiritual union is a spiritual reality. But you know, we still have to look at that man in the mirror. We still have to look at that woman in the mirror. And when I look at that man in the mirror, and you look at yourself in the mirror, and you know that God knows what you know about that person. How can somebody who is a guilty sinner like me and like you, be declared righteous by a holy God. Second Corinthians 5.21 is that landmark passage, that position, that passage that's put down for us. It cannot be moved or challenged. There it is, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For he, that is God, made him, that is Jesus Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him that is in Christ. God took all of your sin and judged it on the cross on Jesus Christ. And God took all of Jesus' righteousness and put it on you and me when he took up residence in us. So that we are in Christ, that means my sins are paid for. Christ is in me, that means that I have been declared righteous by God on the basis of Jesus Christ. So the first thing is union with Christ. The second thing then is trusting Christ. The life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So we can understand that justification then becomes personal to us because we are in Christ and my sins are pardoned and Christ is in me so that I now have his righteousness and it's become very personal for me. I am crucified with Christ. You are crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, we live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. That's how justification becomes personal. But then there's that practical side of things. The life that I now live. 
The same Paul would also write Romans chapter 7. I'm not going to read it to you this morning, but I'll remind you of what he said. It was that passage where he talked about the things that I want to do, I don't do, and the things that I don't want to do, I do. And, and so if I do what I don't want to do and I don't do what I do want to do, he said, I confess then that there is another law in me, a law that wars with my spirit. It is the presence of sin uh, that is in my life. We'd be much more comfortable if Paul would have said, well, I used to uh, not do the things that I wanted to do. Or I, I, I used to not be able to do what I wanted to do. But that's not what he says. Paul the apostle, saved by the grace of God, marvelously changed and yet still struggling because sin dwells in him. You and I know that struggle. And in the light of that struggle, how can God put his stamp of approval on the life, on my life, on your life, the life of a person who doesn't do what he should do and wants to do, but instead does what he shouldn't do and doesn't want to do? How could I be righteous before God? There's only one way. Paul tells us. It's right here in the passage. The life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God. I live my life trusting Jesus every day. I'll tell you this morning, I, I trust Jesus when I'm happy and when everything's going good and I'm healthy. When I'm happy and healthy, I live those days trusting Jesus Christ. And when I'm sick, and I'll tell you, when I'm sick, ain't nobody sicker than I am. And nobody's probably ever been as sick as I am. And I, I'm, I'm, when I'm sick, I'm sick all over. Any of y'all identify with that? When I'm sick, you know what I do? I trust Jesus. I trust Jesus when I'm healthy and happy. I trust Jesus when I'm sick and miserable and making everybody around me miserable. I, I, I trust Jesus on good days. I trust Jesus on bad days. One of these days, folks. It's going to be my last day. And with my last day, I'm going to live it trusted Jesus Christ. How do we live? The life that I now live, I live trusting Jesus Christ. How can I be certain then that God would declare me righteous, that I would be acceptable to God, not on the basis of my performance, but on the basis of my faith. It all depends on who you're trusting in. In a practical way, folks, it plays out like this. I either live my life trusting me or I live my life trusting Jesus. I've already told you where my choice is. I live my life trusting Jesus. I hope you are too. So it's a life of faith, of trusting Jesus. Lastly, it's a life of grace. Grace that comes to us through Christ. I do not then set aside the grace of God for if righteousness comes through the law. Then Christ is dead in vain. The point is simple. If even one man could live above sin and conquer sin, then all should. And if all should, then Jesus Christ died for nothing. But then we know that Jesus Christ is the only one who lived in a sinless life and who conquered sin in the flesh. And he wasn't just a man. He was God, fully God and fully man. And he and he alone was able to conquer sin. And therefore he and he alone was able to die as a sacrifice for your sins and mine on the cross of Calvary. Somehow, though, we find it difficult, just like the believers in Galatia long ago, we still struggle to really believe that my being righteous in the sight of God is because of my union with Christ and what happened because I trust Christ and not because of what I do or don't do.
Surely God himself is still holding us up to some standard of holiness and expecting us to toe the mark. Surely, surely God will be more pleased with us if we do the right things and don't do all the wrong things. Surely, surely we are more righteous in his sight if we do all the right things and we don't do all the wrong things. Surely, surely that makes us more righteous somehow. Surely we're more acceptable to him if we do all the right things and we don't do all the wrong. Surely we're more acceptable. Surely, surely he loves us better if we're good boys and girls. Surely. That's not the case. God has made the declaration, the sinner is made righteous. Christ lives in you and me if you're saved, and I am in Christ. And the life that we now live by faith is one of continually trusting in the righteousness of Jesus Christ because that and that alone makes me and you and you right with God. I'm going to put this plainly to you today. We do not add one iota to our righteousness in the sight of God on the basis of our own performance or works. Not a bit. Legalism is a danger where people decide that they can somehow improve their standing or status with God by keeping all the rules. But legalism is, is wrong not only because it's an impossible standard, but also because of the attitude or the motive behind them. And somehow, listen, I want you to hear this again. If our righteousness is by the law, Paul says, then Christ is dead in vain. Jesus died for nothing. If you could make yourself righteous in God's sight, Jesus died for nothing. So if there is the possibility of legalism, and obviously there is, and it's always been there, it was there in Galatia, somehow this idea that by doing everything right and by avoiding all the wrong things, then we make ourselves more righteous or more acceptable or more loved or more saved. Well, it's just not there. There's also the other option. And Jude warns us about that in Jude 4. For there are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness. And denying the only Lord God and Lord Jesus Christ. Lasciviousness speaks of unbridled or unrestrained or uncontrolled desires. They turn the grace of God then into a do-whatever-you-want kind of life. They hear me preach what I just preached. And they said, well, if I believe that, you're just preaching. You can live however you want to. Or you can do whatever you want to. That is turning the grace of God into lasciviousness. That's what it says. Into just whatever. And the Bible warns us about that. We remember that the same Paul who wrote Galatians 2 also wrote 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. We must all appear 
before the judgment seat of Christ to give an account. How do these things harmonize? If we are righteous in God's sight because I'm in Christ and Christ is in me and I don't add to that by keeping the rules or take away from it by failing to keep the rules, then why do we have the judgment seat of Christ? Why would we be held accountable for both the good and the bad? I wish I had a world-class illustration for this. I don't. I've I, I thought, and this is the best one I've got, and I can't even guarantee you that I actually thought of it myself by this stage in my life. I could have read this 30 years ago, and after all these years, I thought I'd, I made it up. That happens to old people. Give me a little grace, okay? This might have been from Warren Wiersbe. I don't know. I don't know. But imagine. This is an imagination thing. Imagine a child who is a prodigy on the piano uh, the, you know just uh, before he can almost walk a little bit he's sitting down there somebody puts him up on a piano bench he crawls up there and he starts playing and before long uh, he's playing the piano now I'm not talking about playing like this listen you hear your child playing that you think I've got a prodigy no you don't no you don't that's just chopsticks not talking about that kind of product. I'm talking about a little toddler. And I'll be honest with you, I'm amazed when I see these little kids running around with these iPhones and they can work them better than I can and they can't even read. I, I don't understand it. But here's a kid, plays the piano prodigy. Before he could read, somebody put a score of music before him and pointed out that this note is this note and this note is this. And just with a glance or two, it just clicks with him. And before long, he's playing complicated pieces of music. This is a prodigy. He gets education and his, his, just his talent just flourishes because, of course, of his giftedness. But he gets in junior high and some of his buddies start making fun of him, calling him a sissy because he's playing a piano. Only sissies play the piano. Some little girls laugh at him. Yeah, you're a sissy. You're a sissy. And so he decides he needs a more manly kind of way to express himself. And he stops playing. <clears throat> he likes to work on cars. And so he trains himself with those same gifted hands how to run a wrench and Becomes a diesel mechanic. And I'm not putting down being a diesel mechanic. Please don't under, misunderstand me. Don't even go there. Diesel mechanic is an obvious and obviously a wonderful profession. But you think about those hands so gifted could play so giftedly a prodigy. This person could have been the next Mozart. Who know, Mozart. Who knows what he might could have done with those hands. And instead, he's in his 20s or 30s, you ask him, do you ever play anymore? Oh, no, you know, I... And you look at those hands, they're all beat up, knuckles busted, fingers have not lost their flexibility. It's, you think about what those hands could have done and what they're doing. And we might be inclined to think, you know, that was an incredible gift that's gone to waste. Incredible gift not being used. When Jesus Christ saved you and me, he gave us an incredible gift. 
Oh, what a gift it is to be a child of God. To be born again, to have his life in us, to live in us. I mean, what an incredible gift this is. And he intends for us to use this gift for his honor and for glory, for noble purposes, to, to be a blessing to others, to share the gospel, to be a testimony to the incredible power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He intends this life to be lived for his honor and for his glory. But suppose we choose to live it for something else. And we could look at this incredible gifted life we have then and say, you see, Paul said, I'm not going to frustrate the grace of God. I'm not, I'm not going to abuse it. I'm not going to turn the grace of God into lasciviousness. But I'm not going to frustrate the grace of God by thinking that somehow I've got to add my works to this as if somehow the work of Jesus Christ was not sufficient to declare me righteousness. But I'm not going to go the other way either. I'm not going to take this incredible gift God has given me and, and waste it. The judgment seat of Christ is going to be convened, folk, to just show us what we did with the gift that God gave us. And we'll give an account for how we used it. It's not going to determine whether we are saved or lost, but it will determine the reward that we experience in God's eternal kingdom. We'll close our time then together with Paul's words to the young preacher Titus in chapter 2 and verse 11. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works, the grace of God that brings salvation. Let's stand together, please.